0: You are listening to Riverhouse Church's Sermon of the Week. We hope this talk equips and inspires you. Tonight, my message is called Joy, Thanksgiving, and Fruitfulness. And I want to talk about, even go deeper into why um, operating out of a place of rest actually produces a life um, that is marked by joy. And, uh, and I'm going to talk about some keys of how we can uh, be fruitful and, and the role that Thanksgiving plays. In This whole relationship. Does that sound okay to you? Okay, does that sound okay to you? Yeah, yeah okay. You guys going to talk with me or am I going to talk at you tonight? <laughs> I'm going to break you down, okay? All right, so last week I, I, I suggested, proposed to you that living from rest is more fruitful than, than a life of striving. And the reason for that is when we are living in the rest of God, we actually have spiritual vision. We have eyes to see from a different perspective the invitation of God to partner with him for the miraculous in our lives. right? So when I'm living from a place of rest, I actually can see and I have eyes to see, I have ears to hear when God is inviting me into moments of practical partnership to release the miraculous. Right and when I say miraculous yes there's miraculous healings and things like that but I simply I just want to define miraculous by God working in our lives right there's something innately within you and I that is longing to see God's activity through our lives Right, like, in there, like, and just an example to make this really like dumbed down. This is really practical. Like, there's sometimes where people that I, I haven't thought about in a while or whatever, but like repeatedly, one, two, three, four, five times, I'll find myself thinking about them randomly. You ever have this? And I've learned, okay, I just need to stop and I need to text him. And I'll say, okay, Lord, are you wanting me to say something? Sometimes he's like, hey, just call him. I'll call. And they'll be like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you're calling. I'm having the worst day. Da, da, da. I was like, yeah, I'm supposed to pray for you. And I pray for him. I hang up, I'm like giddy. You know what I mean? I'm like, holy cow, that was amazing. Right, that's the miraculous. Why? Because God did something through me that I couldn't do on my own. Right, I wouldn't have thought of them, and then they tell me later those words were like life to my soul on a really dry, horrible, hard day. Right, like God wants to use you and I to see His works through our lives. Right, He's prepared good works in advance for you and I to walk into. And those good works, they're they're his working through us. So they have a supernatural quality to them. Not mystical, not weird, but beyond what you and I can do in our own strength. There's something about us that comes alive when we see God move through our lives because we're made for it. It's partnership. We are co-laborers with Christ. He's doing his work. We're doing ours. And the fruit of that is something beyond what we can do in our own human ability right, and that's what God has invited us into, to be a daily reality of our lives, but unless we are in a posture of rest, we will not have the perspective to recognize when God is inviting us into these moments, and we will strive our way right past them into our own human fruitfulness, but we will miss out on the supernatural fruitfulness that can come through partnering with God to see his kingdom come to earth, okay, So that's the premise of my message tonight, is that rest gives us eyes of revelation. It gives us perspective to partner with God in the ordinary of our life to see the miraculous released through our everyday living, okay? You're like, wow, you're going to have to prove that now. You guys thinking? Okay. So that's the premise and i'm going to jump in i'm going to talk about three things or two things really joy and thanksgiving and how that will produce the fruitfulness that i just described All right so joy is essential to christianity All right, it's absolutely vital the joy of the lord is our so if i'm not living in joy i am weak All right the joy of the lord is our strength if we believe that we can no longer look at joy as if it's like kind of a suggestion or if it's a non-essential quality. Right? We need strength. If we're to live a strength, a strengthened, vital Christian walk, we must be joyful people. Right? C.S. Lewis says that joy is the serious business of heaven. We have to get serious about joy. Right? We, have to, we have to fight to live a life of joy. But the world is very attracted to joy. You know that? I went, I went to this, uh, you know, Jim Gaffigan, anybody? I can mention his name, you know, because he's like the only comedian I listen to because he's not dirty. I appreciate that. He's funny without being dirty. So I went to him like a couple years ago at Taco Bell Arena. Anybody there? Maybe like five years ago. I think I paid like 125 bucks to go and I just laughed my head off. I laughed so hard that people thought it was a woman screaming behind them. <laughs> All right, like this is a real story. I think there were people that recorded it. This one person was like, it's someone in the church. It was Josh Kenny. He's like, yeah, I thought it was an obnoxious woman the whole time and then I turned around and I realized it was Jordan. I was like, yeah, it was funny, okay? I just laughed my head off. I remember I got in the car I was driving home and all of that like joy just kind of dissipated and I was like, man, I feel empty now. Right? And the reason why is cuz I Like that was a really happy environment. It created happiness in me. But happiness isn't joy, right? And I used to think that happiness wasn't joy and that was an external thing. Joy was more serious to me. You can laugh at that right? Like, I literally was like, joy. You can be joyful in suffering, and I would probably think it like that. Serious. I'm serious. I'm suffering for the gospel, right? There is suffering, but I, I I, had this experience of joy where it was in a context of suffering because I had so much suffering in the early years, really, of my walking with Jesus. I didn't understand what joy was, and so I said, oh, happy is just when you're happy, and you're laughing, and you're goofy. I don't have that, but I have joy in the midst of my suffering, and the Lord had to show me, no, no, no. The difference between happy Happiness and joy is not external. Joy looks like happiness. Happiness looks like joy. The difference between joy and happiness is where it's sourced from. Happiness is sourced from your circumstances. Joy is sourced from connection to Jesus Christ, who is the most joyful person in all the world. Right? Psalm 16, in his presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand are, are endless pleasures. Right? Have you seen people really happy before? Isn't it fun to laugh? That doesn't even compare to fullness of joy. What is fullness of joy? And where does that person with fullness of joy live? Inside of you. And what is his name? Emmanuel, God. And what does he say? I will leave you in. Never. Never. So how can we be Christians and claim that he lives inside of us and not be joyful? Right? And it's not just a happiness that, like, oh, I'm, I'm faking happiness. No, it's that you can walk in true joy even in the midst of hellish circumstances. Because it is not a joy that comes from circumstances. It is a joy that is derived from being in connection to the most joyful person in all the world. The scriptures are either true or they aren't. And we should live our lives as validation of the truth of what this word says. And he lives inside of us and he's a joyful God. When he sends the 70 out, they cast out demons. They come back and they say, even Lord, even the demons, they they tremble at your your name. And it says, in that hour, Jesus rejoiced greatly. And that word, if you broke it down, would be he leaped and twirled. (laughs) He's a happy God. He smiles. You know, Zephaniah says he rejoices over you. He will sing over you with loud exultation. He is a God of joy. He abounds in joy. And it is not that there's not a serious aspect of the gospel. There is. There is suffering. But there is a joy that outweighs and outlasts the suffering because the joy of the Lord is our strength. It is time for the church to get serious about joy so that when the culture who will pay 150 bucks to go to a happy event, they will find that what they're looking for actually lives in Jesus. It lives in the church. And if we want favor with our neighbors with our coworkers, with the people we're rubbing shoulders with, we have to be joyful people, right? Everybody wants joy. Everybody's attracted to joy, and Jesus is the source of joy. So if we can live as joyful Christians, people will start asking, what's the source of that joy? They will want to know, and you will lead them and preach the gospel to them. Do you know what the gospel means? Good news. Do you know what it actually means? Too good to be true news. You know, when you hear something like, you know, if you're a Lakers fan, you were like, man, Kawhi Leonard's coming with AD. This is too good to be true, right? And it was because Kawhi went to the Clippers, right? But like, you see what I'm saying? There's times you get news. You're like, no way. This is too good to be true. True. Right, that's the gospel. Jesus is like, "Hey guys, I want to come live inside of you so that your joy can be made full in me. I want you to abound in joy." That's John fifteen. I've said these things to you so that your joy will be full because it's my joy and I'm going to give it all to you. You're like, "That sounds too good." To be. It's the gospel. That's what it means, right? So we have to be serious about joy as Christians. But this is the thing I found with joy. My struggle with joy has not been my experience of it. I experience joy. There's times when I have a lot of joy. Anybody? My, my trouble has been I've had a fickle connection with joy. I can be joyful, and then I can be, like, really frustrated or angry literally an hour later sometimes. There's this fickleness to joy that will, can ebb and flow through my days. And I've had to learn how to steward and protect my joy right? because it, 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 can, it can ebb and flow, ebb and flow. Anybody? Anybody relate to that? You're like, wow, even in the same day, I can have different experiences, and I don't know how to abide in joy. I can experience it. Most people on planet Earth can experience happiness or joy in some measure, but it's walking in it in consistency that I find the wrestle is in my life. And the biggest culprit that I have found in my journey to abiding in constant joy is comparison. Comparison is the thief of all joy. And this is why comparison is the thief of all joy. Comparison compels you to start focusing on your areas of lack. Right, it compels you to look at what's lacking. You start, it compels you to look at other people's life, other people's ministry, other people's jobs, other people's finances, other people's body, other people's hair, other people's whatever car they drive. It, you start looking at other people. You start comparing, and it inevitably draws you away from what God has given you, what God is doing in your life, to focusing on what God is doing in their life or what they just simply have in their life, and you don't. So instead of focusing on what Jesus is for you, on what your testimony is, on how he is working in your life, in the particular way he's discipling you in this season, you're now focused on all the other things that you don't have. He's your source of joy. Now you're looking out here, you recognize lack, and you get really vulnerable. Because you get vulnerable, you say, oh my gosh, I do, I need that, and I need that, and I need that to be happy, and I start trying to... Figure out external circumstances that I can change where the grass will be greener that will finally give me the joy I've been looking for. So we get duped. Anybody that you fall victim to that? Just being honest with you, the the times that I struggle the most uh, in, in ministry is when I start looking at other ministries. Start looking at what God's doing through their ministry. How Stephen Furtick preaches. What that guy's grace is, right? Because there's all these different leaders with all these amazing anointings on their life. You know what I'm talking about? And it's like, well, I'm sure not as charismatic communicator as him. I, God doesn't heal through me like He does through Randy Clark. I mean, I, I mean, I have some wisdom, but not as much as Bill Johnson. Um, like, this is just real. You know, I, I mean, I love people, but not like Heidi Baker does. I mean, I like contemplation, but not as much as John Mark Comer does. I like, you see what I'm saying? This is just real. I can start looking, I start getting down. I mean, Riverhouse is... You know, like, it's grace, but I don't know if it's as grace as that church is. I don't know, like, man, and I can compare and compare and compare, and pretty soon I'm like, man, I start questioning what God is doing in my life. This starts kind of, I start losing my connection there, which is my source of joy. And then I start looking, well, do I need to change this, or do I need to do this? And I start looking at external things, and, I, and I'm very vulnerable in that place. Because comparison steals, kills, and destroys our joy. It's the thief of all joy. All right, so we got to learn... How to protect our joy. Amen? Amen. Just say amen, Pastor. I got to learn how to protect my joy. Say it. All right, that's true. We do. You do need to learn how to protect your joy. All right, so turn your Bible to Philippians 4. We're going to learn how to protect our joy tonight. That's good news. (laughs) All right, Philippians 4.4 we got some joy in the room. All right, so Paul is in a prison, and he's in the inner chamber of the prison. So they think it's where there's like feces and rats, and it's a really terrible circumstance. And Paul authors a book in Philippians where one of the primary themes is rejoicing. It says rejoicing like a lot of times in the book of Philippians. So if Paul can write a book on rejoicing from the feces of the inner chamber of a prison after he just got beat for the gospel's sake, I'm pretty sure he had a revelation on how to protect his joy. Amen? Amen. Philippians 4.4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving Let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Rejoice in the Lord always. Then he offers us this wisdom. Pray with thanksgiving and the peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds. Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is a weapon in your hand. It has the power to actually produce the peace that will guard your heart and your mind and protect the environment of joy you have because the Lord is near. Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is a powerful tool that you and I must learn to use because it produces peace, and peace protects our mind. It will steward our internal environment. Does this make sense? The reason that Thanksgiving has the power to do this is because Thanksgiving trains us to focus on what God has done and to focus on what God is doing and not to focus on what he's not doing. Paul could have focused on a lot of things that God wasn't doing for him sitting in the prison in Philippi, but he didn't. He was consumed with what God was doing and that peace guarded and protected him, right? An environment, living in an internal environment of peace and joy is rest. That's the rest of God. And last week, divine motivation is fueled from the place of rest. Because when you're aware of what God is doing, right, one, you have peace. And two, you're positioned to hear what he's speaking so that you can catch the wind of the spirit And the inspiration of God can possess you as you go about your life. Paul was motivated in the inner chamber of a Roman prison after being beaten to author a book that has brought hope to countless millions of people. Right, Because the inspiration of God overtook him because he still, even in a prison cell, had a posture of peace and joy. And he could hear the whisper of God and he was filled with the inspiration of heaven, the motivation of God to author a book. That has impacted millions. We often get in circumstances like that. We're so consumed with what's not happening that we're in negativity, depression, joy. We lose our peace. We just start looking at all the things that aren't happening. And we're useless to do anything of eternal value. But Paul, even in the pits of his life, (laughs) was being used to produce inspiration and fruitfulness beyond what he could imagine. You following me here? So thanksgiving. When we train ourselves to focus on what God is doing, that then prophesies to us about what He's going to do. Because He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. All right. And thanksgiving, it mines, it it, it actually mines our internal world right like when there's gold in a mine it's a there's work involved in mining out that gold right and and our in in our inner man we're aware of what god is doing but thanksgiving it searches it searches our history it searches our soul and we begin to offer him thanks in response to what he's done and it it fixes our eyes on god in the midst of all of our circumstances right Th- like and, and the more intentional that we get in our Thanksgiving, the more aware we become of His intentionality in our lives. And so sometimes it's like, you know, thanks for my dog, thanks for my shoes, thanks for my family. Okay, now let me do something spiritual. You know, it's like we we look at Thanksgiving like it's kind of like, you know, yeah, just yeah, just kind of do it, just do it because you should. It's a good like routine. Right, but we actually enter his courts with thanksgiving. Right, so there's, a, there's, a, there's an engagement where we actually enter into his presence because we become aware of what he's doing as we offer thanks. Thank you, God, that when I was really stressed last Tuesday before that meeting, you met me with five minutes of, of so much peace. And it brought peace to my soul so that I could walk into that in a way that I actually had something to offer it. Like, that's, that's real. Those are the types of things I find myself thanking for God. And as I do that, it's like, whoa, yeah, you did meet me there. But so often, we don't become aware of it because we're just kind of, you know, we're just kind of aware of whatever's happening in our life. But when I do that, I stop. I go, well, wait, you met me here. You met me here. And we're learning to recognize the movement of God in our life. Does this make sense? As we remember what he's done, gives us eyes to see what he's doing. As we have eyes to see what he's doing He begins to prophesy about what he's going to do. It's training us to become aware of God. And God is our source of joy. God is our source of peace. It's Jesus. He's the Prince of Peace. And his presence is fullness of joy. You following me? You with me here? You know that you have engaged with the heart of thanksgiving when you've actually produced peace and joy. Right? Thanksgiving Produces peace and joy. We oftentimes look at ourselves kind of like we're passive sometimes, like, you know, I hope I can be joyful and peaceful. Like, please give it to me, God. And in Thanksgiving, God said, no, no, you can actually produce this. Right? When you give thanks, you can't give thanks to God for all his goodness. <laughs> and not one, you become aware of what he's doing in your life. Right? And awareness produces peace. Like when you're on a road trip, you're lost, and you're like, did I miss the turn? You ever been there? It's very anxiety feeling. You're like, I think I'm lost. I think I'm lost. I'm running late. Am I going to be there? I don't even know if I'm on the right road. Then you see a sign that's like, Boise, 50 miles. You're like, oh, right? Like I'm on the right path. Does that make sense? When I, when I become aware of what he's doing in my life, it produces peace in me. It's like, oh, Okay. Like I'm in the, I don't have to look to to Jordan's life or to Robin's life or to Susanna's life or to whoever's life for me to get confirmation because I know I'm on the path with Jesus and he's giving me that voice, this is the way, walk in it. Produces peace, right? And it produces joy because you're aware of his goodness that's being given to you. And when you remember all his goodness, how can you not become joyful? He's the most good person in all the world. He's the most powerful person in the universe, and you're the apple of his eye. It's, like, really hard to sit in that and not get happy. (laughs) Like, it's too good to be true. Me, little old me, you love me. He's like, yes, I adore you. I think about you all the time. I just can't wait to be with you. It's like a golden retriever. You know, it's like, come on. (laughs) Come on. Like, yeah, let's do it. Whatever you want. Let's go. It's like... But it's like God, the most powerful person in the universe that can, like, spoke the whole world into existence. He's like, you're my my favorite. It makes you happy. There was a season of my life when I I had come. I was serving in another ministry, and they were really blessed. God was moving there. And then I came back to start ministry here in Boise. And I had all these grand notions. I had expectation that God was going to move here the way he was going to move there. I was ready to turn the world upside down. Three weeks later, it wasn't happening, and I was depressed. And I thought for sure I'd made a mistake. I'd missed it. I needed to go somewhere else. I needed to change my circumstance because my circumstance, I was no peace, no joy. Everything was miserable. I was grinding, 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 grinding. And I was not, I didn't even need to pray and ask God if I was in the wrong place. I knew I was in the wrong place. The question was, what's the next place I need to go to? And the Lord met me and with one conversation shifted everything. He said, Jordan, I've been working for years to get you in this circumstance. Where are you trying to run to? And he said, you have been wanting me to do this, but that's what I'm doing in their ministry. I'm doing this in your life. And in one moment, everything shifted. I had peace because I was like, okay, you're with me. You're, you're, I'm on the right path. And I started finding so much joy in partnering with what God was doing in my life instead of comparing myself to what he wasn't doing compared to all these other people. Some of you in here, you've been so frustrated about your circumstances. God doesn't want to change your circumstances. He wants to change your perspective in the circumstances. But the only way you're going to change your perspective is when you use the key of thanksgiving to produce the peace and the joy, to actually enter into the rest of God. Thanksgiving, it it can be effort. You have to mine a little bit. But as you start disciplining yourself to give thanks to God, you're actually learning to enter into the rest of God. Living in an internal environment marked with peace and joy. That's a soul at rest. And this is really important. So joy, thanksgiving, fruitfulness. Learning to live in peace and joy, which is what thanksgiving produces, is incredibly vital to living a life of kingdom fruitfulness. And this is why. When a human being is not at peace and joy, if they don't have that within themselves, we will inevitably have an agenda to get it as soon as possible. We don't like anxiety. We don't like feelings of depression, sadness, right? So if I don't have, if I'm not cultivating an internal environment of joy and peace, which comes through Thanksgiving, I I find that as I give thanks to what God's doing, I I will have an agenda in all my circumstances. I will need those circumstances to produce that for me. And when we have an agenda, we we are actually in a very powerless place as it pertains to being used by God to, to influence our circumstances. Right? There's this this word of being an influencer. This is like what everybody's searching for. You know, this is like the big word, the buzzword. You an influencer? You an influencer? I want to be an influencer. I want to be a social media influencer. Influencer, influencer, influencer. But well, we fail to recognize sometimes, influence isn't bad. We want to be influencers. But the people that influence the world for eternity, the influence for the kingdom, are the people that are the most influenceable by God. They're postured to be influenced by the Holy Spirit. That's how you become an influencer from God's perspective. You don't strive to build a platform. You make yourself very, in, in a posture that's very influenced by God. You, you, you're just so at the whim of the Spirit of God to be influenced by Him. right? And what is the Holy Spirit? He's like Wind. He, he blows. You don't know where he's coming from. You don't know where he's going next. You just have to be in this very place of just, hey, whatever way you blow, that's where I'm going. Right? I was a golfer growing up. I needed to know which way the wind was blowing. What did I do? I had to go pick a few pieces of grass and just toss it in this, this surrendered posture so that the wind could blow it. And I could see where the wind was blowing. Right? God says in Isaiah that the people he uses to build his house are those that are broken and contrite. You heard that before? Broken and contrite in spirit and contrite in heart. If you were to do a word study on that, that, that that phrase, if you could put a picture around it, it would be a leaf that's dry and it's so dry that if you were to squeeze it, it, it just turns to powder. Just powder, so just, just just so influenced, no resistance to the wind. God is looking for people that He can just, that are so influenceable by His Holy Spirit. When you live in rest, when you have peace and joy, you actually, you're so, you're just present with God. I don't have to come to my circumstances with an agenda to get it, because I already have it. So there's a certain sense of, you know, I I can just be so available to hearing the whisper of God. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. This is in John. I don't have the reference off the top of my head, but... um, they're accusing him that his teaching is not from the Father. And he replies in this way, and he says, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he'll know if the teaching is from me or if it's from God. If anyone's will is to do God's will, you'll know if the voice is mine or if it's from God, if it's from man or from God. So in other words, if, you're, if your will is empty, if you don't have an agenda, if you're simply just surrendered to the will of God, Right? There's this sense almost of neutrality. Right? You're just you're just like powder. If anyone's will is to do God's will, you're actually positioned to discern if it's the voice of heaven, if it's the voice of God, if it's my voice, it, where, where the motives of my heart are. Does this make sense? Yeah. Right? Rest. Rest is this posture where you're just, I'm just powder because I'm so satisfied in you. I'm so satisfied in you that I don't need to come to ministry or or relationships or my job or money or whatever it is I don't I don't have any agenda because I don't need those things because I have a sufficiency in you because I'm at rest Does this make sense? That is the posture that we're ready to be influenced by the whisper of God, the wind of the Spirit, and we can start to recognize the divine invitations to partner for the miraculous. That is the posture of the fruitfulness that that, that that positions us to experience the fruitfulness you and I long for. Here's a couple practical examples. That posture actually gives us vision that we would not have otherwise. If you turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel 18, we're gonna look at the example, uh, a story of Saul and David that we've all heard but I just want to give you a perspective here that Saul was not a soul at rest. He was not aware of what God was doing in his life. And it, and it cost, him, cost him greatly. Right, so this is the day that David kills Goliath. This is a day of great joy, of great rejoicing in all of Israel. Saul was full of great joy as we begin this story because of the great victory that had just happened. Right? So it says in 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 6. <laughs> that was close. <laughs> it happened as they were coming. When David returned from killing the Philistine, that the women came out of the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, and with musical instruments. Now, this is a day of celebration. The women sang as they played. They said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Then Saul became very angry, for this saying displeased him. And he said, They've ascribed to David ten thousands, but to me they've only ascribed thousands. Now, what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul looked at David with suspicion from that day on. I believe that God was prophesying to Saul in this story, he was prophesying of his legacy. He was prophesying to Saul about his successor. He was prophesying that your ceiling is going to be David's floor and he's going to go further than what you've What you've labored to create God was actually inviting Saul into the purposes of redemption for his life because Saul had fallen already Saul had already had had already transgressed the Lord but God was bringing redemption he was offering him a way into a legacy he was offering a pathway that this is the young man that I've anointed to be your successor and you can serve him and honor him with your life and you can bestow and impart to him your wisdom Saul, you've done your thousands he's going to do ten thousands and together you'll have 11,000 and legacy generation after generation are you following? me? God saw, God God was offering Saul a way to redeem his his iniquity. But Saul was so insecure, which we see all throughout his story, that he didn't have eyes to see that. He got threatened by it because he was living in comparison. How dare you say David has his 10,000s? God's saying, Saul, you are a nobody. And I chose you. I put my spirit on you. And look at all you've done, but he didn't have eyes to see. He wasn't grateful for what God had done, that God had chose him by grace. He was just threatened and insecure because he was living in comparison. Well, why aren't you giving me 10000 like what you did with David? And because of that comparison, it robbed him of his destiny. And now we read a a sad story of a broken man who partnered with comparison and insecurity the rest of his life and tried to kill David because it threatened him. The very thing that God was prophesying to be his blessing and a multi-generational legacy, which his son, Jonathan, picked up on immediately. The one who was actually gonna be King Jonathan, different story, because Jonathan was secure in what God had done for him so that he could lay down and love David as his own life, All right, It's the two postures that we often take, but Saul lost it because he was living in comparison. Not, not aware of what, he, right? God's saying, if you just look at me, you won't have to worry about your significance. If you just look at me, you'll have joy and peace in your own shoes. If you'll just find sufficiency in my peace and my joy and enter my rest, there's no one else you'll ever wanna be. You won't have to look to David or look to anybody else in the church to compare if you're good enough or if you really have what it takes or if you're significant or if you're valuable or if you're anointed because you are but you're not gonna find that in looking at other people or looking at what people think of you or your opinion, your Instagram followers or whatever it is. You're only gonna find it when you become aware of what Jesus has called you to and what Jesus is doing in your life. Saul couldn't do it. He missed out on the invitation to to pave a legacy that was gonna be something beautiful from the heart of God. Turn your Bibles to Mark chapter six. Look at a New Testament example of the same principle where Jesus is trying to disciple his blind and deaf apostles and to be able to see the invitation to partner with him for the miraculous. This is another famous story where he feeds the multitudes. Actually, go one page over to Mark 8. I want to read this one instead. This is when he feeds the 4,000. It says, in those days, this is chapter 8, verse 1 of Mark. In those days, when there was again a large crowd and they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples and said to them, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from a great distance. All right, so back up for a second. He's already fed 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. Okay, so this is time after that. He's already done it. And Jesus is God, and he looks at his disciples and says, I want to feed this 4,000-person multitude now because I feel compassion for them. Right? This, is, this isn't just like some dude saying that. It's like, this is Jesus, who's already multiplied food. He's looking at his disciples and saying, this is the miracle that I want to do right now. What does the disciples reply? They answer him, where will anyone be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy these people? Jesus is like, Excuse me? I already fed 5,000. I'm God. You read Genesis 1, formless and void. Seven days later, you're all here with the oceans. Like, right? I don't need a lot to work with. Right? But his disciples are so fixated on what's not happening, on what they don't have, that even after he's already multiplied the food once, and he says, hey, guys, I feel compassion. Like when I felt compassion and opened the blind eyes, and when I felt compassion and did all these miracles, I feel compassion, I wanna multiply the food to feed all these people. And they go, can't do it, not enough food. (laughs) You know, we laugh, but God's like, hey, I know you have a desire to pay off your house so that your mortgage is debt free. I can't do it. I don't make enough money. It'll take me 30 years. God's like, did you hear what I said? Right? I, I, I want to use your mouth. No, I don't know how to speak good enough. I want to blink. No, like we just, our our, our our gut reaction is so often, no, lack, 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 lack. I want you to do that. No, failed speech class. I want you to do that. No, failed math class. I want you to do that. No, don't like people. Want it, Like, right? Like, <laughs> Right? It's like, we, we can always just search, nope, let me tell you all the reasons why that's impossible. God's like, I'm the God of the impossible. Where will anyone be able to find enough bread in this desolate place? And Jesus responds. He does this the, in, in Mark 6. He does this in Mark 8. He asks them a question. How many loaves do you have? In other words, what am I doing? What have I provided? How am I working? And they said seven. And he directed the people to sit down on the ground and taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks and he broke them and multiplied them and fed the multitude. Jesus was not afraid of what was lacking. He wasn't focused on that. He was focused on what he'd been given. And I don't know how God multiplied that food, but I don't think we need to know. I don't know how God opens blind eyes. I don't know how God brings financial miracles. I don't know how God does like 80, 90, 99.999% of what God does. I'm not actually concerned about how God does it. I'm just concerned about what I need to do to position myself to allow him to flow with his miraculous power through my very ordinary life. And Jesus is showing us Quit focusing on what's not happening in your life and give thanks for what I have given, for what I am doing, for what I have provided, and give me the chance to show you who I am. I preached last week on one day of favor is better than a thousand days of labor. We sometimes think that we're waiting on God to give the favor. God, I'm ready. Give me days of favor. God's saying, I poured out my spirit on the day of Pentecost, and I've lavished endless grace, favor upon favor upon favor upon you. The days of favor aren't on my end, sons and daughters. It's on your end. Are you ready to recognize my favor and partner with it? But here's the deal. If I haven't produced a posture of thanksgiving and rest, we'll be like the disciples Oh, we only have seven loaves and just plow right on with my day, striving, 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 striving. That seems ridiculous. That seems absurd. We won't even have eyes to see or ears to hear God's subtle invitations to say, pause. Come here and just give me this and watch what I can do. Pause. Why am I thinking about that person I haven't seen in 12 years? Maybe I'm supposed to call him and text him. And all of a sudden, five minutes of your time turns into a divine encounter that impacts eternity, right? This isn't like some out there ethereal thing. This is that if we become disciplined, and focused on giving thanks for what God is doing. We will produce peace that guards us. We will have joy that wells up within us and we will be so influenceable that the whisper of God can come and we'll we'll heed those invitations to partner with God to see the miraculous flow through our lives. We were destined by God to live every day as a day of favor. We can strive our way right past those invitations and we will produce some measure of fruitfulness, but we will miss out on what the, the only God stories, the only God testimonies, the miraculous invading of the kingdom of God through our lives. This is what we're really longing for. It's Thanksgiving. It has the power to open our eyes, to open our ears. It trains us to become aware of heaven, to become aware of Jesus. Isn't that good news? Isn't that too good to be true? I'm just going to invite you to stand up. I think the Lord wants to do a ministry for a few of us. I just want you to close your eyes, and I want you to start just mining your own soul to give thanksgiving. I told this last service, I said, you know, like, you know when you've eaten good Mexican food, the fruit of that is that your stomach is full of gas. You know, like you're gassy. That's how you know you've eaten Mexican food. And uh, you know you've really engaged with thanksgiving when you become full of joy and peace. I, I actually think that's like straight from heaven, so. <laughs> but truly, that's when you know it. Uh, in the, in the, one of the deepest times of the depression that I went through, which was a multi-year depression, um, there was one night I was laying in bed. and I remember I had a drinking fountain right outside my room in this nice house. And I was like, I have a drinking fountain right outside my room. And I was like, thanks, God. And I was like, whoa, literally. And then I was like, I have a fan that's blowing cold air on my body to make it comfortable right now. And I was like, thank you, God. And then I, like, looked over, and I had blind, like, all these windows looked out of the backyard and had these nice shutters on them. And I was like, thank you for those shutters that I can push up so that the sun, I can sleep in in the morning. And literally, all of a sudden, started getting wrecked, like Thank you for this. Like By the time my mom came in to say goodnight, I was like, Mom, I have a drinking fountain eight feet from my bed. She was like, what? I was like, I have a fan that's blowing air on my body. I have shutters. I have sheets on. I have clothes. Like, And she was like, are you okay? And I was like, I was like, yeah, I think I really am right now. Like, seriously. And I, I, it was so, like the my whole internal reality shifted from literally one of the most dark, depressing, despairing moments, times of my life. And I remember it was like a flood of joy. And I wish I would have stewarded that and continued walking in it because I didn't. It took me years to really start, like. Getting into it, but I, I'll never forget that was the first moment I encountered true Thanksgiving, the heart of Thanksgiving. So right now, I just want you to, I just want you to close your eyes, and I just want you to recognize that every good thing in your life has been given to you from God, and I just want you to just begin, just with your voice, right, just start giving thanks for the little things, the intentional things, the big things, and enter into the heart of Thanksgiving, and actually, and partner with God right now to produce the peace and joy that comes from being in awareness of how God has worked in your life. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your presence. I thank you that you are opening up paradigms in our mind tonight to actually recognize, God, joy, how we can produce peace and joy in our lives. I thank you that you haven't left us passive victims, but you've put a a powerful tool within our hands that when we yield thanksgiving with effectiveness, God, it produces powerful joy. God, that can actually transform our internal environment and make us so uh, postured to be used by you. God, we just thank you for your word, that it's powerful and effective, and that you're doing powerful things in this room right now. God, for those of you in this room uh, that have been, uh, you've been bound in comparison, right now, in the name of Jesus, I take authority over a spirit of comparison, and in the name of the Lord, I break that off. I break off every whisper, every influence that has kept minds just infiltrated with thoughts of comparison, and we just say no more in Jesus' name, and we release the peace of God into this room, into every heart, into every mind, the peace that protects the heart and protects the mind, God. you will remove every thought pattern, God, that you'll even come into our minds and you will renew them right now, God, with new patterns of thinking, God, that the spirit of truth will come and convict us of every thought pattern that does not derive and find itself in the knowledge of Christ Jesus. We tear down every thought. We take every thought captive and tear down every lofty argument, every lofty, reasonable argument that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, and we just speak peace and joy into this place god we are a thankful church we are a thankful people for who you are for what you're doing that you have called us to this city that you have called us to this family and that you are doing a good thing oh just just press in a little longer just just actually like you're happy Thank you, Jesus. Lord, we are so thankful. How can we thank you enough for all you are, for all you've done? God, disciple us. Disciple us into a true heart of thanksgiving so that we can be a people of rest and a people of fruitfulness, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Riverhouse Podcast. For more information, visit riverhouseministries.com.